0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com.
2: This week on Meetin 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it.
1: What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future.
2: It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just... It's, there's nothing like it. You yeah. know, there's, there's nothing like it.
3: When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as
2: when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: How many food tech companies do you think it takes to find the next big thing? A hundred? Three thousand? Maybe that number is 4,000 on this episode of Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world. About a million listens a month. And I am always convinced when I'm sitting here in studio that every single one of them is listening to Tech Bytes the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. Today, we have Manuel Gonzalez here, who has created a very interesting food tech fund, and we're going to talk with him about that today, about the sorting process and how many companies you need to look at to find the big idea. But before we get to that, we're going to start this show, like we start all our shows, talking about apps. And first up, we have Our man in mission control, Jeet Paul. Jeet, how are you this morning?
5: I'm good. How are you, Jennifer?
4: I'm good, too. Although it's a little bit cold outside.
5: Yeah, a little bit.
4: (laughs) We are kind of complaining about the weather. Not very (laughs) spring-like. Right. It's dark and gloomy. Yeah. But it's cozy in our refurbished uh, shipping containers that make up the Heritage Radio studios. That's true. So, Jeet, do you have an app for us this week that you like?
5: Yeah, I got a new one called Add Text to Video. Ooh, uh, that sounds
4: very social media savvy.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. If you have a video and you'd like to add text to it, um, the, the app lets you do it.
4: <laughs> is, it com- is it easy to use? You just import the video and then...
5: Oh, yeah. So basically you open it up, you choose any video from your gallery, your existing gallery, and you you add text to it and then it bounce, it renders it out with the text printed on top of it. Uh, I use it primarily for videos that I post to YouTube that I want to post to Instagram, but I want the title in the video so that people, when they're scrolling through their Instagram feed, they can see the title of the video uh, on the video.
4: (laughs) So this is something new about you we haven't discussed. What kind of videos are you posting to YouTube?
5: Oh, it's something my band and I just started. uh...
4: Your band. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we're, we're unpacking a lot of secrets Ooh. about Jeep this morning. <laughs> your band. Tell us about your band.
5: Uh, it's a prog rock band based, uh, based in New York, and um, we had this really fun idea of... What is it called? Oh, it's called Mayaxic. Um, Can you
4: spell that for listeners at home?
5: Sure, it's M-E-A-X-I-C. Okay. Um, yeah, so we wanted to get back on the horse of making you know the band active again and we're doing weekly meetings and we thought oh, it would be fun if we just record these meetings and put it out but then one of the other members was like maybe we should snip it down to like one or two uh what's the word uh sizable uh snippets so that's what we're doing every week
4: fantastic so <laughs> what's your youtube channel handle
5: oh it's just the same as the band it's m-e-a-x-i-c
4: and is that your instagram handle also yep are you playing in new york anytime soon
5: oh no we haven't played in a while so we're just writing music and trying to just get back out there
4: okay (laughs) do you have any audio on soundcloud or anything like that
5: yeah i mean we released an ep in 2015 that went to like loud rock charts on cmj and then we did a few singles afterwards
4: (laughs) Hmm. things we didn't know about jeep (laughs) All from an app. This is why the app segment is so great. It's always fun, and you always learn things about people that you didn't know before. Okay, can we say again the name of the uh, video... Editing app, because I've completely uh, yeah. forgotten, because now I'm just mesmerized <laughs> by Jeet and his rock band.
5: Yeah, it, it just says the name is Add Text to Video, Write Text on Video. It's very, very straightforward.
4: And is it a free
5: app? It's free, but there are ads, which is which is a little annoying.
4: Okay, well, good to know. And more good to know, Jeet, rock band, EP. <laughs> Woo. Check him out on YouTube, follow him on Instagram. Thanks, Jen. Manuel, nice to have you here. Hello,
3: Jennifer, how are you?
4: It's important to tell listeners that while we're here to talk to Manuel about his new project, Global Riff, I've been slightly uh, booking, stalking him for a few years now because he was formerly of Rabobank, which is the Food Bites event, which is something that we love in the food tech space. So I'm happy to finally get him in the guest seat. (laughs) No,
3: thank you.
4: Nice to have you. Welcome. He's also West Coast-based, so it's extra special that he's in town and has time to spend with us. Manuel, do you have an app that you like right now, something that you use every day? Maybe it's not new, maybe it's an old favorite. The only rule is you cannot talk about an app that you own, Uh have invested in.
3: (laughs) You know, I use the normal apps, I guess. A lot of WhatsApp, <laughs> a lot of Instagram and things like that. But I was really fascinated um, hearing about progressive rock, by the way, because you don't hear about progressive rock a lot these days. So well, that's, uh yeah, you know, brings me back to when I used to hear music.
4: Well, that's good. Maybe you can... Do you have the YouTube app? Maybe you can download that I will, and check I will. out Jeet's music I will. on your travels. Yeah. Well, as I said, I'm I'm so happy to have Manuel here. He has been in the food tech space, in the funding of the food tech space, for a couple decades now. And Global Riff, Riff is Revolution in Food Fund, um, is his latest endeavor, and he's really at the very beginning of this project. So, if you want to follow along, um, and You know, check it out online while we are on the air. The website is globalriff.com. So we talk a lot about funding. Funding is super important in the startup space. We talk a lot about funding food tech. There's a lot of things about it. And most of the funds and the incubators and accelerators are dealing with fairly small numbers of companies. They ultimately are going to take on maybe a dozen maybe they're going to have 50, 100, maybe 200 applicants. When Manuel and I were speaking before the show, he said that Food Bites was around 1,000 companies. But if you really want to make an impact and you really think that the world needs some really game-changing ideas to help with the future, he thinks you need about to be vetting a pipeline of about 3,000 or 4,000 companies a year. Which I don't even know how that's humanly possible. And it turns out it's not humanly possible, which is why the first part of the application process to the RIF fund is AI and machine learning, which they're developing right now. So fascinating to me. So, Manuel, tell us just just briefly why you think it's so important to be looking at that many companies.
3: Well, you know, to start with, it is very, very difficult to find the great companies, and, and indeed, there are some good companies, there are many good companies.
4: What, what does great mean to well, you? The, the what company, are the ingredients?
3: Yes, it's a company that is really going to, you know, like take over like a demand curve. So when you see a market growing, when you see a, a big um, demand push, so right now, for example, the big drivers, um, the things that are changing food are, you know, related to health, to environment, to lifestyle. So when you see a demand curve that is driven by that and is growing really, really fast, there will be only a handful of companies that are going to take over that growth. A lot of companies are going to get on it, but not all of them are going to be successful. And it is very difficult to tell. So which one is going to be the one that's that's going to you know excel and that's going to have really the um, you know the value added and differentiated. Uh, propo- uh, proposition, and that's what's very difficult. And it is very difficult to tell if you don't see them, if you cannot compare them, and you know you don't see them one against each other. So that means you have to see them <laughs> all. So not <laughs> only do
4: you have to see them individually, but yeah. you need to see them in comparison Absolutely. to everyone in the space, you or at least to. in that category, well, to see what are the special determining factors about each company.
3: Exactly. And you need to be able to tell, well, what is the difference? You know, in which part of the whole process of what makes a great company, where is the difference? Is it in the team? Is it in their technology, in their go-to market strategy, the business model? What is it? And how do you tell? You know, can can you have a process by which you can say, okay, this one is better and I can go and pinpoint the differences and go into that? And, and you, and you need to have that. I mean, usually what you have is that people in a, in a fund or in any other, you know, investment uh, group, they just sit around and they say, okay, so, you know, why do we like this, this company? And then, then blah, 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 blah. Okay, good. I mean, you're, you're, um, um, you're relying on somebody's experience and ability to make a choice. Um, They're
4: the individual's frame of reference. Maybe yeah. they're new, maybe they haven't been in the space. Maybe they're coming from a different space. Maybe they're an expert in the space with deep history and knowledge. But, but you, you will don't still know, have. do you?
3: But you will still have a lot of personal biases and that's going to affect your decision. So part of the process is, can you eliminate your personal biases and have a real um, you know, a, a um, objective or as, as objective as you can decision process?
4: So fascinating. We are used to seeing the compare and contrast page, I think, when we shop online. You know, if you're on a a retail website, Amazon does it, Apple does it, most websites will do it, you know, even hotel rooms and things like that. You can click on the products you want to compare and it'll give you a grid and it'll have different categories, you know, size, price, you know, details. So we're used to being comparison shoppers in life. Mm -hmm. Those inputs, when you look at that online in terms of buying a product, you're absolutely right. There is no emotional point of view. There is no personal point of view. It's just comparing really apples to apples and specific categories. How many categories do you think you need to look at to evaluate the great company? What are some of the categories that you're thinking about if you're trying to eliminate that human emotional element yeah, what well, are the other things?
3: And, well, you divide it precisely in the types of risks that, that there might be when you're building a company. So you're thinking about the market risk. And that is, you know, how big is this market? And is it growing? And how consolidated it is? It is because that's very important. If you look at a company that is going to depend on the one buyer, that's a huge risk. You probably should not do that. Or if you're looking at a, very, a, a market that right now is broad but is consolidating, that's a risk. In the case of food, you have to see it also from the supply side, same way. Are you going to depend from the one supplier or are you going to have a lot of suppliers? So market market is very, very important. The most important, of course, the team, who is the founder, the experience, uh, diversity of the team, those things. So that is the execution, the capacity of the team to execute.
4: I would think that evaluating a team is very personal and emotional and human. How can you scale uh, algorithm or machine learning to evaluate a team of people?
3: Yeah. Well, we're going to try it, but there are certain things you you can already look at. And that is the experience of, for example, of the founder. Have they been in a leadership position or not? Um, Is that important? It is. Have they done it before? It is important. can they be coached? And that's a difficult one. It takes time to get to know that. How they how the team is built. So if you see diversity on the team or not, what's the experience of the team? Are they in place? So there are things that right that you can you can evaluate right now. And of course over time the model would get better because we of course we don't think that all, all of the things that we're putting right now in the model are gonna be predictive. But I think over time we're gonna be able to evaluate if, if they are predictive and, and how predictive they are. And that's that's a bit of the process. What you need to know is not only if they can predict, but also what's the value that it has, That what's the weight. So right now, for example, I'm giving a higher weight to the team than to other things. For me, the team and the market are very high in, in the weight.
4: In value. Yes. In importance. Mm-hmm.
3: But... You know, we will see if the weights are correct or not correct. Um, I mean, in the end, I would like to be able to go through that process and eliminate about 80% of what I get from the deal flow. And then you focus your experts into already the companies that you think are, are good. And then you, you're trying to find those gems, right? Because, you know, going back to the idea of how many companies are going to be good, how many, you know, how many are they going to fail, how many are going to you know, be excellent, The issue is that um, the distribution that you see in, you know, good and bad is not a normal distribution. It's not that you have a tail of really bad that are going to fail. And then a lot of companies are going to do okay. And then just a few companies are going to, you know, be a breakout. No, it's a lot of failures. So it's the reverse. Yeah, it's a lot of failures. So it's it's, the curve goes like... If you
4: could ballpark it percentage wise, what's failure to success? In this um, sort of like success, food tech innovation category,
3: success is one percent or less.
4: One percent, so it's even more challenging than opening a restaurant.
3: <laughs> it's it's like that. Now, probably we need to evaluate why, right? Because it, you know a lot of really good teams and exceptional people fail. I think it has to do with the fact that probably they're you know, their key partners were not the right ones, and then some decisions were made that could probably could have been avoided. And then what happens is that they cannot race another round because of the mistake they made. But it's not because their idea wasn't good, it's not because the team wasn't good, it's just that some decisions and lack of experience that took them there. So maybe that can be changed, but right now it is very low.
4: So the application process to be a part of Riff is basically four stages. The last two are going to be video and then interviews. So a more traditional person-to-person type of assessment process. But the first two are all machine learning and algorithm and AI. How did you come to the idea of bifurcating the process that way and creating this initial AI evaluation? Is it something that's been out there? Is it... It's not something that we've heard yet on this show, and we talk to a lot of people who invest in startups and a lot of founders and things like that.
3: No, there's, there's some, some um, investors that are already using um, machine learning and, and these kind of things, algorithms. So it's not super new. And also, you know, banks have been using ratings for a long, long time, not coded this way, I think. Not right now they're coding it. So.
4: so you took a financial institution and financial scenario, usage, and then just applied it to the food tech space.
3: Yeah. I mean, and then it, are
4: now customizing the different elements and way it needs to read.
3: Yeah, you just need to find, I mean, in the end, whenever you analyze a company, you're still looking at the same types of things. Um, you, you change the nuance depending on the stage of the company. So, you know, a, a bigger company with a lot of information, you, you, you find that those answers in a different way than the way you are finding the answers in a company that's very early and where you don't have a lot of data. But you're still more or less looking for the same type of answers. You know, is this product good? Do people want it? Is it defendable? Um, is it viable at scale? So you're looking for the same things.
4: Did you have a light bulb moment one day? Did it come to you gradually? How did how did you come to the idea? And then once you had the idea, what was your next step?
3: Well, um, yeah, there was a moment, in, and it was when I started seeing how many applications were having footbites, bites, And then I thought, how are we going to deal with this? Because, you know, there is a way to deal with it if you have an army of people. But when you don't have it, so how do you deal with it? How can you have a more effective way of going through it? And then the next thing I thought was, well, I need a process not only that allows me to do that without a lot of people, but also that allows me to compare companies because also over time that becomes very powerful when you can see a new company and you could, could you can compare it back to what you've seen in the past and you can actually see where the difference is, it becomes really powerful. Right now, what do we do? We rely on people's memories. Well, that's great, but that is not a system that builds on each other, it builds on the person. But what happens if that person leaves, you know, where is that knowledge, where it was And and I thought, well, we need a process that builds on itself, that becomes intelligent, and um, that's that's where it started.
4: Where do you go to get something like that? Where do you go to build a, a program like that?
3: Well, <laughs> we know, I live in San Francisco in Silicon Valley, so there are <laughs> lots of coders, and this is not again, it's not something that hasn't been done before. It's been done for other things, so. You know, the, the process actually, in, in the sense of machine learning, is very classical because, you know, an algorithm and, you know, a, a mathematical process that learns on each other is not, is not new and now it's been done for a while. So um, right now, um, so we are testing the prototype, tes- testing how it works with, with um, um, companies. And then once we are happy with what we have, then we will start coding it.
4: That's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. We are going to take a break right now and find out who the sponsor is of this show. Did you know that Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? Did you know we're kind of like public radio and we keep the lights on and the mics hot entirely out of the generosity of our members who are listeners like you, grants, and companies who underwrite us like this one? Stay tuned.
1: Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated palm house, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Pool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get, and I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
4: Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is a company called RIF. It is global RIF. It is a new fund. It is looking at helping to build a future by investing in revolutionary new food tech companies that are maybe going to help save the world. Originating founder and managing partner is Manuel Gonzalez. He's with us in studio today. If you want to check out Riff, the website is globalriffriff.com. You can find them on social media at, at globalriff. It's a really interesting concept. And when Manuel and I spoke on the phone before the show, we spoke about the two-part Process that they're going to use to evaluate companies. The first half is all AI and machine learning, which is interesting because it creates an even playing field in terms of evaluating founders. And one of the issues that we talk about so much today, not just in food tech, but just in investing generally, is how it's very difficult for women founders to get funding and how it's difficult for you know, founders of diverse backgrounds and ethnicities and shapes and colors and things like that, it's its difficult for people to get funding. Um, if you're a young white guy, it's easier. And if you're anybody else, it's often more difficult. I had to, I had a episode that I did women founders of travel companies. And one of them was telling me that the, there's, you know, they invented a male partner that they put into the deck and saw an uptick in interest and in response just by wow. having a guy. So part of what you talked about at the beginning of the show was the importance of the team and the diversity of the team. So talk a little bit about how those things are important and how this initial mechanical algorithm process is maybe going to bring to light different types of companies that maybe people wouldn't look at because of that predisposition towards male founders.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and this is something that I, I very strongly believe in and, and um, well, for many reasons, but I, I just don't believe that you can be innovative if you don't have diversity and that's background, you know, gender, color, everything. So, you know, in my view, when, when you see a problem, you identify a problem, your first reaction is emotional. And that depends on your background. So, you know, if people from different places perceive things as a problem in a different way, or things not as a problem, so you need to be able to have people that are going to have an emotional reaction to something, and it goes the same for solutions. So, different solutions, different views, different points of views—they'll give you a different emotional reaction to what is good or or not good as a solution.
4: A great example of that, and it's one of my favorite anecdotes that I have voiced on the show before a friend was in Italy putting together an international dinner with international chefs with an American point of view and it was proposed that the focus of and theme of the dinner be about you know food waste and cooking with what we consider food waste and scraps and things like that is this sort of movement that's very strong right now in the United States of making sure nothing goes into the garbage can and you utilize everything from your kitchen and your refrigerator. And this is a big idea in the U.S. right now. It's a big idea in social media and media and cooking and restaurants and there are events and movies and hashtags. And in Europe, the response was, what are you talking about? That's the way we live. That's the way we cook. We've been doing that from the beginning. So that is a same idea, but to your point, two very different... Ideas about it, two very different solutions for it, two very different sense of urgencies about it. In the United States, it's a new thing; we have a sense of urgency to not waste any food, and in Europe, they've had the point of view of that for a long time, so they're less urgent about it.
3: Yeah, and and you know, you you need to to have a uh, again an emotional um, relationship to what's going on, and and background gives you that, um, you know. Um, as a woman, of course, you you know and you feel what it's like um, to be seen as inferior, right? Men do not perceive that difference. So when so sometimes when you choose a team and then you choose only men, you didn't even think about it because you're not you're not feeling that emotionally. You have to think about it uh, intellectually, like okay, I'm not I'm not I shouldn't be doing that. Now when you're a minority, you understand what it is. Because you, you also have that emotional reaction. So in my case, you know, I'm Mexican and, and born and raised. So in Mexico, I'm not a minority. No. Right. So I know what it's like. But then I come here, I am minority and it's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I did understand, OK, this this doesn't feel good. You know, it's it's not nice to feel that you're not part of a group and you're not, you know, you're gonna be seen as different just because you know the color of your skin is, is different. So it changes the, your point of view of why it is important to be sensitive about it. Before that, it's intellectual, but then go back to innovation. Same thing. You you need to have people that are gonna have a reaction to something if you want to perceive the problems that then you're gonna find a solution for. But then as you're, finding, as you're finding solutions, you need people that are going to have different point of view. If we're all from the same place, we went, we went to the same schools, eat the same food, we're just going to be looking at the same things and same types of solutions. Of course, we're all great because we all agree on everything, but that's not how things work. So we, you want to look at that for many reasons, um, certainly because it's, it's a good idea.
4: And you took that philosophy to heart when you started to build the team of investors and advisors for Riff.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in building my team, I'm still working on it. I would like to have it very female-centric. I think the future of food is probably more female than than male.
4: That's interesting. I I know I've seen a t-shirt probably somewhere that says the future of food is female. I know the future is female, definitely exists. (laughs) What... What is it that gives you that point of view?
3: Well, um, I just see, I just see that you know, there's more and more um, female founders. I do see that they they have a different view of what is a problem in the food space. Probably a little bit more sensitive about what their family needs, about what the children need, about you know things like that. So, so I see that a, a, a lot more, and um, yeah, that I think that's why probably. A, um, again, I'm um, probably a more, um, a closer emotional need to change the way we eat than for men. Uh, probably we are a bit more happy with having a, a big steak. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> or do women evaluate things in a slightly different way? Are male founders looking at things from a dollar perspective or business deck or business plan perspective? With the positive impacts of, you know, health and people and consumption, yeah. but are women looking at it from a more uh, perhaps uh, intimate and uh, integral way to the human experience maybe?
3: I think yes. I think probably, which is also why you should have both in your team, right? Because you also need, you know, I think you need that balance. So you, you bring your company, remember that a company has to be viable, right? And it has to be viable at scale. So you also need to see things with a coldness of what the numbers say, eh? but you, you will, you know, to find a real problem, you need to understand the you know, in, in your, in your, you need to sense it, right? And um, I think women are better at that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> women are better at that, dot, 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 asterisk, that, everything. <laughs> Where are you in the stage of getting your application process ready and open for companies to start to apply to be a part of your fund?
3: Yeah, right now, as I was saying, uh, we're testing. And um, I'm working with, actually, Dartmouth University. We have a project there, and it's great with the MBA program. And um, a team there is helping us go through this process. So we're going to be testing and tweaking. And um, hopefully, you know, within couple of months, we're going to be ready to start then, you know, creating the digital experience of it.
4: Have there been any surprises thus far? Has it gone along with, you know, sort of a framework of what you thought it was going to be? Has anything popped up that's... Not
3: yet. Not yet. So, no, because we need to see, you need to see a lot of data and we'll, we'll see. I think within, within a month, we're going to be able to start looking at data and analyzing whether something works or doesn't work.
4: Are you going to feed the system maybe some established companies that are very successful, what their profile was at the beginning, to see if they would make it through your
3: process? Exactly. So actually that's how you're supposed to do it. So you know what the result is and then you analyze the data and how it would have looked as it went through it and, you know, is it giving you that kind of result or not?
4: That's very interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. Well, I'd be curious to see how it, you know, finally works when it's up and running. So tell us then what happens. Walk us through what the whole process is going to be like once it's up and running. Because it's an interesting. If if you take a look at the website, it's an interesting sort of uh, infographic of how the process works, the machine learning and the human selection.
3: Well, yeah, this is still an idea. So you know, part of uh, what we're what we're going to be testing is how the interface is going to work. Right now, what we're thinking is first is going to be. Really like, you know, going into the website and applying and then answering some questions. And as you answer the questions then behind it in the background, then you're being scored. And all that is happening. Depending on how those things are answered, then you go to the next group of questions. And then, and then if, if you go through that, so the first part is completely digital through the, the, through the, um, the website. That's what we're thinking right now. Um, you know, um, we're going to have a template of a, uh, one page business plan and I One
4: page business one page. plan. Are you listening founders? One <laughs> page business plan. What's on the one page business plan?
3: Same thing. Sounds as, like
4: a good thing to have. It sounds like it should be your elevator pitch on paper.
3: It should. And this is the thing that is very important. When you first do it, do not spend too much time writing a 30 page What's document. too much
4: time? How, how quickly should you be able to write a one page pitch?
3: Couple of hours.
4: Couple of hours. Yeah, okay.
3: and the reason for that is that you shouldn't fall in love with your ideas too much. And mm. when you spend too much time writing something, then you don't want to change it.
4: Interesting. You become <laughs> you become invested in Absolutely. the document because it took you days and days,
3: months, right? So when you know when you when you try to put your ideas very quickly on paper and try to make sense of them without having to write, you know, a whole page on it. It's very, it's very interesting how your mind works, but also it allows you to change it. And when you're starting something, you need to be flexible. So you need to be able to change your thing. So can you put on paper very quickly and very, very succinct about what is it that you want to do? And that's important too.
4: I love that. The one page pitch. Okay. So they're going through, they got the one page pitch. They're finished. They finish the application. Then what happens?
3: Then by then they will be finishing the second stage. And then what will happen is that we're gonna have a panel of experts in the background, each one of them uh, scoring. And that's an important part also of eliminating personal biases. Because when they score individually, um, and you have many of them, when they coincide on something, when there's consensus, that's powerful.
4: So this is also why it's really important for you and for the process to work as you envision it to have diversity of advisors and experts
3: yeah you need you need to have pe- to have people that are going to see things in a different way but also that have expertise in different things and then when you go through what they how they scored you know what they know and they're good at and then you value a little bit more this and that so um but when you have a, a panel of really you know, very experienced people, and then you see there's consensus on, on, on the one company, they're probably right.
4: Interesting. Yeah. What happens in the next stage then?
3: The next stage, then by then, you only have a few companies left. And, um, and then you go into a um, classic due diligence. But then what happens? You're really focused on very, very good ones. They've gone through a whole process, you know, from answering questions giving you business plan, interviews, scoring, then you go. And, and then that due diligence, you're really being effective in the use of your people and the time because you're spending time with those that you think are already in a, in a very good batch.
4: Well, I'll be excited to see Riff get up and running. yeah. And I hope that you <laughs> will too. come back later <laughs> and keep us... Keep us appraised of the progress and the process and how companies are looking and coming to light. You are going to be interested in three different arenas of food tech food and consumers, food safety, and food hacking. Which, so food safety is pretty self evident it's contamination, it's blockchain, it's
3: packaging, supply
4: chain packaging, all those kinds of things. What's food hacking?
3: Here I'm looking at two things. Uh, one is has to do with personalized nutrition.
4: Personalized nutrition, we yeah. did a show last week with um, the CEO of the company called Edamam, and personalized nutrition was top of the list of what they think is the future.
3: Yep, and it can change many, many things. And uh, I think it can be very disruptive, um, not only for ourselves and the way we take care of ourselves, but I think for the industry. and. Um, you know, depending how you build your story, but um, personalized nutrition can become a fairy tale for part of the industry or a horror story for another part of the industry. And um, I think that you know, just just think about this: what happens, or what would happen if at some point you're using, I don't know, DNA testing and lab testing to de- define genetically what is what are the good foods for you, and then you're using technology then to decide then. How are you going to eat those foods? Let's say, you know, recipes, communities, and stuff. And what if even that part, then you even do your whole purchase process, even through that same technology, so that in the end, you end up never going back to a retail store?
4: It's amazing.
3: What, I mean, never what shop again. Well, imagine what happens with brands. How, how do you make your brand um, you know known? If the shelf is not there anymore, people don't go there
4: anymore. We're, we're already at that place because with the advent of Google Home and Amazon and Alexa, you can tell Alexa to buy you paper towels yeah. or to buy you you know chocolate chips for baking or hamburger or anything, you can tell Alexa just to buy you the generic item and Alexa will make the decision for you which yeah, brand exactly. you get or you can be brand specific or not. So we're already in a, in a retail sp- environment with technology that the brand importance is already decreasing and non-existent in some instances, which is pretty amazing. The brand is becoming less about the actual item and more about the portal. Amazon is the brand, so the retail portal or the delivery services you know, caviar or Uber Eats or something like that. The delivery portal becomes the brand that people are loyal to because that's where they make their transaction versus the end retail item or food item that they're purchasing. It's really a fascinating time. Everything is evolving so quickly and so rapidly. One of the things that um, my guest last week, Victor, who again is the CEO of Edamom, He was saying that he believes that this type of really personalized nutrition is only about 30 years away, that most of the technology exists for us to have a wearable device that gives us real-time data about our personal health in that moment. And then to your point, something can tell us what to eat and order it for us and process it for us and, and bring it to us, that all these pieces of technology more or less exist in different environments and we need the technology to harness them all together
3: so so think about this the the in the past the seal of quality was the brand right so i was going to buy a brand you know coming from a past where there were no brands and then food was probably not safe Mm -hmm. then safety and quality was the brand oh you know it's Reliability. Here. Yes, exactly. I can trust. So now the trust will go to this personalized process of, and my DNA testing or my lab testing that tells me genetically what I'm supposed to eat. So and what I buy and what and the way I eat is determined by diet technology. My seal of approval of quality is in my that environment that I created with that technology, no longer with the brand. So that is a big shift from from how we buy and why we buy, and that is very disruptive.
4: It's, ha- it's happening already, mm-hmm. and I, I think the big brands, the big legacy old brands are maybe not realizing it, or if they are realizing it, it's it's a big thing to tackle in terms of how do you pivot and evolve to solve it. One of the first uh, shows that we did back in, tw- I think it was 2015, we did a show with IBM Chef Watson, which is a fascinating Piece of technology, you know Watson. It's the it's the learning AI. They taught Watson, they IBM taught Watson to cook by feeding it information, feeding it all of the recipes from the Bon Appetit database, by feeding it nutritional information from different databases. And the fascinating thing about that, and it reminds me very much of your unemotional, unbiased evaluation process. It has a consumer interface for Watson where you can put in a couple of ingredients, three ingredients. You can put in what meal you want to eat, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You can put in dietary considerations, gluten-free, vegetarian. You could put in some stylistic points, spicy, not spicy, and it will create a recipe for you. It's not a database of existing recipes. It will actually pull all the information that it has and create a recipe. So the interesting outcome, I mean, there are so many interesting outcomes about that, but the two points that I think are most salient to this conversation is with that type of technology, you could stand in front of your refrigerator or you could look at your personal nutrition output and say, I need a recipe for dinner that has eggs, spinach, Mm -hmm. and pineapple because that's what I have and I don't want to waste anything and I don't want to go to the store or maybe that's what my bio readout says, I need spinach, eggs and pineapple and then you can get a recipe. Sometimes those recipes are a little weird though based on your cultural frame of reference. It was giving people recipes for breakfast that had like fish and spicy things and things that we typically don't eat for breakfast as Americans so people thought that was a little weird. But fish for breakfast is very common in many other parts of the world. And yeah. Watson didn't have a social bias to what a, an American would eat or what somebody else would eat. So there's so many different things that are just fascinating about it.
3: Yeah. And think about this because right now um, our fridges are still a ingredient deposit.
4: Yes. And also... A waste generator. Absolutely.
3: So, what happens if it, it becomes a an experience deposit? So, because you're now in this personalized um, world with uh, you know a an, a an AI that is making recipes for you, you're buying those again digitally, and so you're receiving from your you know supplier an experience, not ingredients. So, you're gonna have that with less waste because it's exactly what you need and that's how you're going to have it. So maybe in the future we're not going to have ingredients anymore at home. We're going to have experiences.
4: And maybe in the future we won't really have very much food waste if everything is just perfectly calibrated. Yeah, And people will likely be healthier if they're eating specifically to their personal biomechanics.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and hopefully fresher. So, you know, those things are important that they change and we have to be aware that You know, in this country in particular, there are more allergies than in other places. And um, we really need to think about the way we eat processed foods, how things are being grown, the use of pesticides. And while I agree that you cannot pinpoint exactly where the problem is, there is a problem. And we need to change a number of things and see how it works.
4: A lot of room for innovation and a lot of room for new companies to bubble up and and make an impact
3: Yeah.
4: well Manuel I want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us today it's so interesting I hope you will keep us apprised of how the testing is going and when the applications are officially open we have a lot of Food tech entrepreneurs who listen to the show, we can have you back. And maybe eventually, it's probably maybe a year or so away, you can come back with some of the companies that you're investing in. Absolutely. And we can find out what kind of new, amazing food hacking technology <laughs> is, is on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Again, if you want to check out uh, Global Riff, go to globalriffriff.com. If you want to follow them on social media, it's at Global Riff. If you want to follow Tech Bytes, we are at Tech Bytes HRN on all of the social media platforms. If you want to send us an idea or a comment or, you know, give a shout out to your favorite show, get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can email us techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We broadcast From the Heritage Radio Network studio inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Jeet Paul is our engineer. Our amazing techno theme song is Nomad CPU Track by DJ Uptown Nico. You can find him live in clubs around New York City. I'm Jennifer Layutzi, your host and producer, and this is Tech Bytes.